This week, we celebrate April 23rd, Shakespeare's birth. At least that's where we're all going to agree that we're, let's agree that he was born on April 23rd and his death, which was what's actually on April 23rd. But what if, what if Shakespeare didn't die on April 23rd, 1616? And what if instead he traveled to America to begin a new life? That's a great intro, but you know, I've always thought it must have been a sucky birthday party, that final one he had. You know, they bring in the birthday cake for him. Okay, we'll blow out the candles. <laughs> good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 16th year, number 802, Thing of Darkness. History records that a William and Margaret Kemp sailed from England to the New World in 1619. Actor, educator, novelist, and my old Summerstock colleague Alan Batchelder has written a new novel called This Thing of Darkness, which takes this historical nugget and imagines that William Shakespeare, instead of dying in 1616, fakes his death and attempts to reinvent himself in the Jamestown colony, assembling a family of fellow outsiders and navigating relationships with their fellow English settlers, the local Powhatans, and a creature out of legend. This Thing of Darkness will be published in two weeks on May 3rd, 2022. So I was thrilled to talk to Alan about where the idea for his novel came from and how deep his Shakespeare nerdery goes. My Shakespeare nerdery began at, at the age of 12. My dad took me down to see uh, Henry V at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I'd never seen a Shakespeare play before, and I thought my quote that he always loved to throw back at me was, God, I thought that was going to be like opera, but it wasn't. It was good. <laughs> so we sat in like the second or third row center, and Powers Booth was Henry V. Wow. Charismatic. And they had cannons going off and they put that substance on the sword so they spark and flame when you're fighting. And I was hooked. And so I went home and I knew it was my dad's favorite play. So I started trying to memorize Oh for a Muse of Fire. And I still remember how I did it then, which was wrong. <laughs> the line, uh, but pardon gentles all the great unraised or whatever. I thought it meant uh, in my 12... 12-year-old brain, I thought it meant pardon gentles, to gentle as a verb. Mm. The act of pardon gentles, you know, the mood, the feeling, the whatever it is. And so that's how I would say the line. Uh, anyway, for this, I actually wrote it out of spite. Oh. I don't know if you remember when we first met in 86, but I was super adamant about the authorship question and I was open to a lot of possibilities that Shakespeare might have been bisexual, that he'd had numerous affairs, that he had illegitimate children, that he had help writing his plays. But I've never been terribly flexible on the idea that somebody else wrote them because it just seems elitist to me. But anyway. Not anyway. Uh, that's a fundamental truth with which I agree. Continue. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, so uh, the... The spite part comes in in my research, and I read the whole Marlovian Bible of the Marlowe Society, 
about how Marlowe faked his death and went into exile in France and wrote Shakespeare's plays, never mind the fact that Marlowe had never written any comedies before that point. And suddenly in exile, he becomes one of the greatest humorists of all time. Um, I thought, well, what the hell? Why, if everyone else can fake their death and write Shakespeare's plays, why can't Shakespeare fake his death? And what would he do? Where would he go? We know he was curious. We know he curious about foreign lands and things. And the other spite, the other aspect of the spite was that two very dear friends of mine laughed in my face when I told them, hey, I have this idea about a book. And they went, ha, 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 that's stupid. And immediately I said, that's it. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You're writing on a dare. I love that. That's a that, and that's enough motivation for anybody. Sure, that's great. Well, well, yeah, really. I mean, I suppose a lot of people, you know, they want to be famous or make money or just have an impact. But I just, I just wrote it out of spite. So, um, well, and 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 I want to get into the meat of what happens in the novel without getting too spoilery. But one observation, one bit tidbit that you include that I love is the notion. Speaking of the authorship question, that um, there's one theory that says that the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. Um, wrote Shakespeare's plays, and in your novel, you posit the exact opposite: that Shakespeare, yeah. as a as a as a as a scribe for hire, wrote a bunch of things that De Vere could claim as his own. <laughs> right, right. Well, again, it's that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, all right. So it begins out of spite, but then how do how did you construct the the your narrative? Um, what, what, what was your first beginning? What were your first thoughts? Well, um, I like the idea, I stole this from The Tempest, of starting with the storm. Great. Right? Uh, and how ironic it is. You know, one of the last things he wrote potentially, and here he is in that very same predicament without the benefit of an aerial to, you know, save his ass. But when I write, I always have the beginning and the end in mind and certain um, guideposts along the way. So I'm, I'm sort of a hybrid uh, plotter and pantser, I guess you would say. Um, I, I can't super plot things. Uh, I had a friend once who used to say, you know, you can't write from on high. You can't dictate or predictate every single action or thought or feeling so a lot of things are strange epiphanies, like the Earl of Oxford thing you're mentioning. That was a, a spur of the moment act of malice on my part, that you know, <laughs> out of left wing, and I just ran with it. Um, so pretty much that's how I work with structure. I, I wanted him to start in the storm and then get to uh, land, but I also had to introduce the other plot element, which is the second chapter of the book, where we first sort of get a hint that something is amiss. But there's also, uh, there are also treacherous uh, locals, and as I call them, the mercurial natives, and the potential for Spanish spies. And uh, I have ideas for a sequel in mind, if this is, you know, if there's sufficient interest in that. Um, but I also, have, you probably do too, I also have a, a warehouse of other ideas that I'm constantly kicking around. You know, it's like that uh, that internet meme where the guy's walking down the street with his girlfriend and he looks back at the other girlfriend. I, I'm so easily distracted by ideas. 
it's hard to stay focused on one of them. Well, and this is 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 thing of is this thing of darkness a departure for you from your other novels? How many novel novels have you published? So this is uh, my sixth, and I've been in a couple of anthologies. Um, the other ones are all more than twice as long. Mm. Well, this thing of darkness is like a 64, 65,000, and the others are 165,000. Wow. And would you describe them as a sort of historical novels or more fantastical? Well, those are a genre called grimdark, which is the same genre of, say, Game of Thrones, where uh, it's uh, an ambiguous sort of amoral universe where you can't always distinguish between good and bad. And there, there is no outright good. And sometimes you can sympathize with the bad people. How did your other writings inform the writing of this thing of darkness? Or how did your Shakespeare nerdery inform this thing of darkness? Did you find yourself um, trying to answer questions raised in the plays or raised in what we know of Shakespeare's life? In, in did you try to uh, find yourself incorporating those things into the novel? I did. I, I'm trying to think of an example because I, uh, well, right. So the the woman with whom he may or may not have had a child is uh, called Luce or Lucy. I think she might have been called Lucy Negro even back in uh, Shakespeare's day, and she was a well-known prostitute. She was African English. So uh, I just run with that. I say, that's a fact that happened. And actually she was the love of his life. Mm. Didn't have the courage to do anything about that. So uh, that factors in. Um, there are other elements, you know, looking at his life in Stratford. I, I, you know, it's funny because I was already writing this when Hamnet came out. And that's such a sweet, beautiful, lyrical book. And I don't think mine is sweet, beautiful, or lyrical, but I, I posit an entirely different way in which Hamnet dies and a different impact that it has. Uh, and you and you posit a different a different kind of relationship between uh, right. Shakespeare and Anne, his wife. Right, right. Uh, and I I wonder um if I fall into some of the traps of male authors versus female authors, I, I like to think that I'm, I'm not uh, Mr. Macho, uh, but I grew up surrounded by three sisters and a mother. And I'm actually a Girl Scout. This is uh, a weird story, but <laughs> I didn't want to pay for babysitting. So whenever, and she was the troop leader. So whenever they went to camp or whatever, I had to go with them. You know, I had to sell the Girl Scout cookies. I had to... Uh, I was a de facto Girl Scout. An honorary Girl Scout. Yeah, well, maybe dishonorary, but anyway. <laughs> Hi, this is Ian Gomez, and you're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? We are still the remote Shakespeare company for a few more days, but this week, our first live performances in over two years will be in Washington, Pennsylvania this Wednesday, April 20th, and in Reston, Virginia next Sunday, April 24th. Check out the touring page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our Twitter feed at Reduced for the latest information. 
Now back to my conversation with Alan Batchelder about his new novel, This Thing of Darkness, which comes out the first week of May, 2022. As it happens, Alan was my very first Shakespearean client. So I was privileged to be a beta reader of his manuscript and, and get in on the ground floor, well, the mezzanine level, of this very fun and fascinating new novel. One of the things that was so intriguing about your idea when you told it to me is that it's it's to- this idea, this speculative what if sort of alternative history fiction combined with Shakespeare nerdery and known facts is totally my jam. You yeah. Know? So this well. was this book is right in my wheelhouse for many reasons, and 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 the way you're able to juggle so much of the historical research and the, and the, and the speculative idea of what would a man like Shakespeare, a successful artist, a successful imaginer of other worlds and behavior, what what would he do in a in literally the brand new world of North yeah. America? Yeah. And we know he's curious. I mean, he mentions it in Comedy of Errors, he, The Tempest, obviously. Um, I just think he had an insatiable curiosity. People say, well, how could he have known all this stuff about law and medicine and education and, and war? And uh, They never talk much about the, the missing years, like eight years or so that we don't. You can accomplish a hell of a lot in eight years in the prime of your life. But you could. <laughs> um, well, and the other lovely idea is that although this thing of darkness uh, as a title most obviously refers to, I don't think this is much of a spoiler, the creature that uh, becomes um, a threat in uh, the Jamestown colony, it also feels like it describes our protagonist as well. You know, right? Yeah, he's poet. let he's unleashed something. Yeah, uh, that you 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 know I, I don't know if you're this is spoiling or not, but you were very instrumental in you know helping guide my thinking, and uh, and I love that uh, just the redirection at the end where he's looking at himself and going, oh my gosh, what have I become? You know, and and what am I turning into? And where is this going to lead? Um, and I even threw in another little twist after that that you you're unaware of. Um, I kept one or two of the little Wikipedia things that that you advised me against, and you were right. But <laughs> I think my readers need to be a little more spoon fed. Um, this is their for some of them they're not used to Shakespeare necessarily, and never underestimate the stupidity of your readers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're reading me, so. <laughs> I mean, but you're right. You can't you can't even pull two or three words out of Shakespeare without it having been used by ten million other people, which just goes to show how many people are impacted by it. I once tried to figure out like what is the economic impact worldwide of of the Shakespeare industry, and and actually my first foray into this was twenty or thirty years ago. I wrote a screenplay in which two graduate students stumble upon the foul papers for Twelfth Night. And this becomes a major threat to the Oxfordians and the anti-Stratfordians. And it also is a major threat to the Stratfordians because if it disproves or proves that Shakespeare didn't write it. So it's actually kind of, it's a mad, 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 mad world caper comedy. And 
you know, you got to start somewhere. And that was mine. How did you go? Because when we first met 35, 36 years ago, you were an, you were an actor and I was a young director, I guess, already kind of slash sort of playwright. Um, how did you how did you then segue into writing? I went to grad school after I met you and got my master's in acting. And, and eventually I became an equity actor. But uh, during my first gig, when I was in Kansas City at the Missouri Rep, uh, my first equity gig, my my soon to be wife was buying us a house in West Seattle. And that changed all the different financial equations. I have so many brilliant friends who make, you know, 45, 50,000 a year in Seattle. You, you can't get a big Mac for $50,000. Yeah. Right. Horrible, horrible market. Um, so I just started, I did stand up for 10 years, uh, which was fun, but it's not an old person's game. Yeah. I don't think. And um, then my mom passed away and I just said, you know what? I'm 50 or whatever, and I'm not getting any younger and I'm not leaving behind, you know, something. Uh, I don't think for my son necessarily to, to reflect on or be proud of, or just some sort of a, I don't know. I, I felt a little bit like Alexander Hamilton, like I was running out of time and I was going to write my way out. And that's what I'm trying to do is just leave behind enough of these things so that when I'm gone, he's got a whole world of, of whatever. And my friends have a world of things to remember. And, and also it's my, uh, it's my retirement plan. <laughs> sure. So sure. far, so far it's only paying for the marketing, uh, after <laughs> all these years, but, uh, you know, you got to have a second, a secondary and a tertiary income stream. Well, congratulations. And, uh, here's to success for this thing of darkness and, and its sequels. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir, for everything. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except for one more thing I'll share with you in about 60 seconds, so stick around. Alan Batchelder's This Thing of Darkness drops on May 3rd, 2022, but the Kindle version is available for pre-order now. Let us know how you're faking your death and reinventing yourself via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or throw comments to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram or on our own actual website, reducedshakespeare.com or visit my website, theshakespeareans.com and maybe I can help you with some of your upcoming projects. Thanks, as always, to Fly to a Wanton Boy, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Jack Gardner. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to my TV husband, Ian Gomez. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 802, 2406 of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Oh, and happy birthday, Willie. As I said, a profound help. I, I had one of these the other night for uh, an online convention, and I mentioned that. I said, I, I was ready to give up at one point, and then you came on board, and you were so excited about it. I went, okay, maybe there's something here, you know. 
<laughs> oh dear, I hope I, 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 I yeah, I, I, I look at the things that I'm excited about and I go, why is nobody else excited about the things I'm excited about? It's because there's 320 million people in this country and, uh, yeah, and 319 million are concerned about the price of gas. Fair. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. 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 So much less.